0: Open with me in your copy of God's Word to the Gospel according to Mark chapter 13. The Gospel according to Mark chapter 13. We'll be reading the whole chapter here in a few moments. Well, there's one thing I heard over and again during my childhood years, and it was the phrase, keep your guard up, keep your guard up. Taekwondo was my thing. I wasn't good at a lot of things. That one stuck. I hung with that for a number of years. And as the years ticked on, I heard over and again, keep your guard up. When we were sparring, perhaps with another partner or two, there's a lot to pay attention to. The feet that might come at you and where they're moving, hands that might come at you and where they're moving, other body parts that might come at you and where they're moving, And then there are your own hands. It can be easy in the course of paying attention to so many things going on in front of you and around you to forget to keep your guard up. There's another thing that I hear from my wife sometimes, at least in my head, and that is don't fall asleep. When we go on long trips, um, she remembers and can't get over something that happened very early in our marriage. It was a trip from St. Louis to Chicago, a car full of friends. I was awfully tired, and I fell asleep and veered off the road. I think I almost killed us. The Lord kept us alive. But she hasn't been able to go to sleep while I drive since. <laughs> and we've had to do a lot of cross-country drives in the course of our life and marriage so far, and there are more to come. Now, there's a lot at stake in Keeping your guard up, there can be a lot at stake in staying awake. And this morning, that is in short, Jesus' message for us. Let's read together Mark chapter 13. And as he came out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. And Jesus said to him, Do you see these great buildings? There will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. And as he sat on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter and James and John and Andrew asked him privately Tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign when all these things are about to be accomplished? And Jesus began to say to them, See that no one leads you astray. Many will come in my name saying, I am he, and they will lead many astray. And when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. This must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. For there will be earthquakes in various places. There will be famines. There, these are but the beginnings of the birth pains. And brother will deliver over brother to death. And the father, his child, and children will rise against parents and have them put to death. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. But when you see the abomination of desolation standing where he ought not to be, let the reader understand And if the Lord had not cut short the days, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect whom he chose, he shortened the days. And then if anyone says to you, look, here's the Christ, or look, there he is, do not believe it, for false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform signs and wonders to lead astray, if possible, the elect, be on guard, I have told you all things beforehand. But in those days, after the tribulation, the sun will be darkened, and the moon will not give its light, and the stars will be falling from heaven, and the powers in the heavens will be shaken. And then they will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds with great power and glory. And then he will send out his angels to gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of the heaven. From the fig tree, learn its lesson. As soon as its branch becomes tender and puts out its leaves, you know that summer is near. So also, when you see these things taking place, you know that he is near at the very gates. Truly, I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. But concerning that day or that hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father, Stay awake. Well, we begin this morning with Jesus and his disciples in a familiar scene. It begins in verse 1. And he, as he came out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, It seems like we have been here before. And if you thought maybe we've read this part before, just reading verse 1, you'd be kind of right. It's like one of those movies where every so many minutes they're in the same place. I think of a scene in Lord of the Rings. Sam or Frodo, I think we've been here before. We're going in circles. It almost feels like we're going in circles. Well, this is the third day in a set of three days, each which involve a movement from Bethany to Jerusalem to the temple And then out again in the evening. And here we are in the third day. We have spent time in the temple already, the longest day that we've spent in the temple in these three days. And now we're coming out. And with each of the days that we have spent moving from Bethany with Jesus and his disciples to the temple, the clock has slowed down and slowed down. We've spent more and more time on each given day. And that has a way of drawing attention to each subsequent day and drawing attention, if you will, now to this particular chapter, these words of Jesus to his disciples. Well, let's begin with verses 1 through 4. We can't help but admit that some disciples can't see what's right in front of them. And that's true for these guys on the page, and it sure can be true for us. Some disciples can't see what's right in front of them. As we've been following with the disciples, we have a bit of a distance and we kind of know where the story is going, and so it can be hard to identify with them entirely, but we can have some sympathy. They have not been seeing Jesus clearly enough at all times. And in this case right here, we can see that for that reason, they are not seeing their own times clearly Enough. In verse one here, they say to Jesus, look, teacher, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings, as they're looking back on Jerusalem and on and at the temple. And humanly speaking, what they're saying is perfectly right. This temple was beautiful. It was stunning, especially for Backwoods Galileans like this crowd, this particular scene and another look at the temple would be encouraging even if things were heating up and getting more difficult between Jesus and it seems like everyone he talks to, they've hitched themselves to Jesus. They take a moment here and they just admire the building. Isn't it wonderful? These stones would have been huge. This building, this facility to construct would have been an incredible human achievement. An incredible work of architecture. And they recognized it for what it was. And they called it what it was. But also spiritually speaking, it was a wonderful building. And they were on to something. And even this comment here, we might say based on what comes, what were they thinking? But actually, we could observe that this could spring from faith. The Jewish population and people and even this place was under Roman occupation. That was no sign of good things for God's people, but they believed the promises of God. And in looking at the temple, this was the place where God would meet with his people. This is where the priests would offer sacrifices and where you could find forgiveness and where you would know that God was alive and well and, and among his people. This was the hot spot of all the work that God would do. In the world. And so they would say, look at these wonderful stones and buildings. And in a way, they were projecting their own hopes and dreams for God's faithfulness onto the the building. We can imagine ourselves being in in that kind of a position. Well, how does Jesus respond to them? Well, Jesus said to them, do you see these great buildings here? See these buildings? There will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be Thrown down. We could say that Jesus put a damper on their aesthetic and architectural sensibilities. Is he not seeing what we're seeing? Isn't this thing a part of God's plan? He also threw a bit of a damper on their spiritual sensibilities. They were trusting Jesus to this point. You'd have to trust Jesus to go with Jesus where he's been taking them. For the last number of days, Jesus has had no less than four conversations, excuse me, the last day here at Jerusalem, he's had no less than four confrontational conversations in which Jesus pulled no punches. It is as though he's trying to get himself killed, and actually it's time for that. And after all the questions, and no one was willing to ask him anymore, he had some questions of his own, confronting and cornering and going on the offensive himself. There couldn't be a more dangerous place to say the kinds of things that he's been saying. But he's been saying them. They've been trusting Jesus to follow him all the way here. But they have not entirely or always been tracking with Jesus. They're not exactly tracking with Jesus now. So verse 3, they sit down on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple. This is where we'll spend the rest of our time sitting together. Four are with us, Peter, James, and John, and Andrew, with Jesus. And they ask Jesus privately, tell us, when will these things be and what will be the sign when all these things are about to be accomplished? They know Jesus is talking about the end of the world. and the prophets, they would speak about a day when God turns the whole universe upside down in the end of days, in the last days, when God comes to his temple and he judges Israel and out the other side, he redeems his remnant, his people, and he saves mightily and he creates a whole new creation. This was the ultimate hope. And for Jesus to say, this temple's going down is an indication that Jesus is talking about The coming judgment and salvation that the whole Old Testament has been looking forward to. And they say, would you be willing to tell us when this would happen and what to look for so we know when it's about to happen? Two good questions. Two good questions which set up for us now the longest teaching section in the whole book of Mark. Note that. This means this is important. It's the longest teaching section. It's also one of the most difficult, if not the most difficult section in the book. And for all of our interest in these things, we should really wish that it wasn't so difficult. A lot of energy goes into trying to get perfect understanding of every little point here It's difficult for a couple reasons. It's difficult because the truth of it all is difficult. I mean, imagine hearing these things. Brother will hand over brother to death. Children, their parents to death. You'll be handed over to kings. It's difficult because these are hard things to hear. But it's also difficult because it's frankly just hard to know what he's talking about exactly. They've asked him two simple questions. They cut to the chase. Jesus doesn't exactly cut to the chase, and I have more questions after I'm reading, done reading this than I had going in. We're going to embrace a bit of mystery this morning and a bit of suspense this morning, which I think is Jesus' intent. He doesn't tell them everything, does he? But we will pick up on some of what Jesus wants to know about himself and what we owe him and where to put our trust in this time. Well, it's difficult truth to hear. It's difficult to interpret. And a little more on this difficulty to interpret. I mean, some of this is deliberate. If you look in verse uh, verse 14, but when you see the abomination of desolation standing where he ought not to be, let the reader understand in parentheses, I take that as a kind of a wink. You're gonna have to read between the lines. And I'm personally happy to read this entire chapter as a kind of an apocalyptic speech, teaching, veiled meanings. Some symbolism is going on here. It's a way of communicating and it's a way of teaching that was not unfamiliar to the original readers. Let the reader understand. There are some things going on here which aren't obvious, but can become more obvious with the right kind of Ear, not an ear to hear whatever we want to hear, but an ear with care to hear what is here. So, some of the ambiguity or mystery of this, I think, is deliberate. He doesn't tell them everything they want to know. But there are just some problems here that we really wish we were doing without. So, consider that this is a passage that Christians often go to to prove the total truthfulness of the Bible and of Jesus. He promises to throw stones down one over another. And in 70 AD, the temple was surrounded by armies and invaded and taken over by Rome and the stones were thrown all over the place. And it's kind of an amazing fulfillment of a pretty bold prediction that you really couldn't imagine taking place. And in 70 AD, something like what Jesus describes there in verse 2 seems to have taken place. Some skeptics will look at this and say that it's actually proof that the Bible isn't honest and isn't true. You'll notice Jesus here says, heaven and earth will pass away in verse 31, but my words will not pass away. He's claiming to be absolutely accurate in what he's saying. But a verse earlier, truly I say to you, this generation, those who live today, will not pass away until all these things take place. That's interesting because just beforehand he said, in those days a great tribulation, sun will be darkened, moon will not give its light, stars falling, they'll see the Son of Man coming in the clouds with great power and glory and So often this is understood to be a reference to the return of Christ. And even as we've read this, we've probably been imagining future tribulation even to us and a future appearing and glorious coming with power of the Lord Jesus. But he says all of these things are going to happen before this generation passes away. And that creates a bit of a problem because here we've got a passage we want to go to to say the Bible is wholly true But that same passage gives us trouble because Jesus, the true one, just said all this stuff's going to happen, and he hasn't come back. Some say, well, he, he must have come back at that 70 AD temple destruction. I don't know. It's a pretty minority view, and I don't hold it. It creates all kinds of incredible other problems. But even believers and believers have a hard time pinning all of this down together. There's a legitimate place for going to other passages and trying to put the whole portrait together here. That's important to do. What is this tribulation and the cutting of it short and these these other things? There's a distant reading of a passage like this we could have where we're looking at this passage from a distance and we're looking at 10 other passages and we're putting things together. This is where you get some of the eschatology charts. We're not real big on those around here, but uh, we are big on eschatology. That is what God promises to do, and partly because Jesus gives us chapters like this. But today we're going to give ourselves unapologetically to what I'll call a close reading. We're going to keep our head down in the page, down in the page in the book of Mark. We're going to see if we can't hear this on its own terms. Not that there isn't a legitimate place later for putting it together with other passages of Scripture, but that actually, whenever we do that, we have to do this work first. Putting our head down to hear the Bible on its own terms, in its own immediate context. It's so easy to miss things, and I think we'll see some things that maybe we haven't seen before, even if you're familiar with it, before our time is out. So we'll give a close reading to it, a little hint to where I'm going with that. It's easy to read this, and the first thing we're thinking is, what does this mean for me, the Christian reader, 2,000 years after the resurrection of Jesus, awaiting the return of Jesus? And we hear these words like Jesus is talking over his disciples at us, and the whole word of God is for us. That's the first way to hear it. But we could, before that, ask the question, how did the first readers of Mark hear these words in the book of Mark. But even before that, we could ask, what did the first hearers hear when they heard this? Because the first hearers of these words were four disciples sitting with Jesus on this third day of trips in and out of Jerusalem that were getting more intense before the passion of Jesus in which he would be arrested and killed. And is there any significance to exactly how this functioned pastorally for the hearers on the page itself. This is the longest teaching we have from Jesus. It's maybe the most difficult in the book. But it's also, if we do it right, the most immediately, maybe I don't say the most, but it's profoundly and immediately applicable, surprisingly applicable It's easy for us to get distracted with a preoccupation with the exact content of specific lines and miss the intent of our Lord in writing this. Sometimes we have a hard time seeing what's in front of us as well. Now, the content does concern a prediction of things in the future. But Jesus' main concern, friends, is your and my and our present faithfulness. It is not that we would be preoccupied with the future, but that we would be faithful to Jesus in the present. And we should search out to the best that we can all that Jesus means for us to expect but at the same time, we have these commands on repeat, do we not? See that no one leads you astray. Many will try to lead you astray. Be on your guard. Be on guard. Be on guard and keep awake. Therefore, stay awake. I say to you what I say to all stay awake. Maybe I should take a moment, about 10 minutes into every sermon, and say, stay awake. This is the preacher's favorite passage. And this is your biblical permission to nudge your friend if they're sitting next to you and they didn't hear a thing I said. Well, some disciples can't see what's right in front of them. Let's move on to verses five through eight. And here we see Jesus' greatest concern for us. We see that his greatest concern for us Is that we not stray from Him. As we work through this passage, I'm going to make some, if you will, applications from a meditation on these things, some general applications as we go. And we'll get into some particulars in the last and fifth division. But we see here in verses five through eight that Jesus' greatest concern for you and me is that we not stray from Him. And Jesus began to say, see that no one leads you astray. They just asked him about when and what to look for. And Jesus doesn't answer the question. The first thing Jesus says is, don't let anyone lead you astray. As it concerns the future and as it concerns future things, we're easily led astray. As it concerns some of the things that he's about to share, we're easily led astray. When the world is breaking apart all around us, we are the most vulnerable to being led astray. When the world is breaking apart and breaking down right before us, we find ourselves in it, we are the most vulnerable to betraying Jesus. And that is a word for our moment. Jesus speaks here of religious upheavals. Many will lead you astray, uh, saying, I am he, claiming to be Christ. And there would have been those claiming to be Christ in Christ's day before he came and after. When the world is breaking apart around us, it seems that there is all the more of a market for answer men and spiritual gurus and, and books on these kinds of things. Not future things, just spiritual answers, the meaning of life. When things start breaking down, beware of religious players There can be religious upheavals, even great interest in religion. And there will be those who are ready to stand there and capitalize on it. And there will be messages that are more and less appealing in those times. And don't be intimidated by by versions of Christianity that give up parts of Christianity. We're not going to do that. Don't be intimidated by false religions that spring up. Even that don't fly under the banner of religion. Religion. Theories of various kinds, self-help movements of various kinds, cults of various kinds, religious upheavals. We, we have international upheavals. Verse 7, you'll hear of wars and rumors of wars. Do not be alarmed. This might take place but the end is not yet. Nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom. He's describing really the normal affairs of life in this world and things no doubt will get worse and worse before Jesus returns. The world is an armed camp. I mean, it's got safer the better armed it has gotten. Less die these days, but we sure are able to do more damage in a moment if we want. And the alignment of nations and their interests and questions of deterrence is a scary thing. And every nation's got to figure out who its friends are and what it values the most, and on what grounds it can cooperate. And who's, who, who, who should make friends with, based on who's whose enemy? What is the line? The enemy of my friend is my enemy. (laughs) Well, nations will make friends with people they might not share a whole lot in common with because they've both got a huge enemy. And I'm glad I don't know everything that's going on around the world. (laughs) No, but that's a bit of a description, isn't it? Where nation will rise up against nation and kingdom against kingdom. International upheavals. We've also got... Natural upheaval, earthquakes in various places and, and famines. You could add to that tsunamis and tornadoes and hurricanes and, and all the rest. And all he's saying here is, keep your eye out for all this stuff, but these things are only the beginning of the birth pains. So that's a helpful illustration. They are a part of the indication of the curse on the world and God's judgment in this age. But it's the end isn't here yet. That's the point. He's not saying, get ready because it's coming. In all of this, he's saying, it's not here yet. This is characteristic of the end of the age. The last days as days, not a few days, but the last age. Jesus, his greatest concern for us in the midst of religious upheavals and international upheavals and even the upheaval of the natural world is that we would not stray from him and so remember that as your attention is fixed on all sorts of things happening around you and happening before you in your life and on the news and in the nation and in the world that job number one for you christian for you heritage bible church is not to betray the Lord Jesus, and we are ever vulnerable to doing that. We're every hunger, hungry when we loose our eyes from Him for quicker fixes, for seemingly better answers to our desire for righteousness, and for safety, and for security. But Jesus is the only one in whom safety and security is found the only one in whom spiritual safety and security can be found. He is enough. His gospel is enough. Let's move on to verses 9 through 13. And friends, what we say about Jesus when it could cost us everything says everything about us. The upheavals in the world will give way to, for many Christians... Uh, great personal upheavals. And the description of what we see right here is truly the world and life breaking apart. He starts off with be on guard and what he describes here is a truly, a truly a brutal time. Just look at the verbs. They'll deliver you over to councils and you'll be beaten in synagogues. You'll stand before governors and kings. And there verse 12, brother will deliver brother over to death. It's personal, father, is child, children will rise against parents and have them put to death, hated by all for my name's sake. That's quite a prediction. It's a brutal time. Well, there's two things Jesus gives to us, three things we could say, really. First, he gives us a purpose. Be on your guard, verse 9, they'll deliver you over to councils. You'll stand before governors and kings for my name's sake to bear witness before them. What an honor it is to bear witness for Jesus. What an honor it is to suffer for his name. What an honor it will be for some of you to lose your job on account of keeping the word of God. What an honor it will be, perhaps for some of us, maybe for some of our children, inevitably for some of those who follow us, to lose their lives in this place or some other place for the sake of Jesus' name. It is scary and not, as we read these words, God has a purpose for us, his people, when things get harder in this world, and it is that we might bear witness to Christ before our neighbors and the nation. He gives us a purpose, and it's a great honor. He gives us two promises. Two promises. Verse 10, And the gospel must first be proclaimed to all nations. And so even when everything is breaking apart, and as we are tempted to betray Jesus, And you may have been betrayed by a Christian friend. In a state across the country, I know a Christian man, uh, not a friend of mine, not that it's above any of my friends, or me, I suppose. I know a Christian man who turned in his parents to a state official over a a, sort of a petty from this pastor COVID regulation and a call this hotline. Uh, Turning your neighbor's stuff's a little alarming, if you ask me, but not really because the turning your neighbor's stuff is kind of how it goes, isn't it? Here it is, a promise 2,000 years ago that that's kind of where things tend to go as they get more and more unhinged. Not to overread into the intentions of this or that political leader in our own day. That's for you to evaluate. It's just to say that There is kind of a disintegration between even the closest of bonds that can happen. And and as the world breaks apart around us, and as your personal familial world breaks down, and as much as you have opportunity to speak to Jesus, of Jesus, to others, be encouraged with this promise that the gospel must first be proclaimed to all nations. And even if everything around us is failing... The economy, our infrastructure, society. Oh, well, this promise, it won't fail. And That's good news today. Well, there's another promise. That's a promise concerning the nations. How, how about one about us personally? Verse 13, And you'll be hated by all for my name's sake, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. So friends, the, the worst of times are the best times to speak of Christ. Not that all times aren't good times and right times to speak of Christ, but the worst times are the best times. And why is that? Because the worst times, when it's costing us so much, is an opportunity to prove how valuable Jesus is to us. Don't worry so much about not being liked. I think it's often so well intended. A Christian, a movement, an institution, We want to have a proper biblical Christ-like demeanor in our presence in the world. Got plenty of Bible verses on demeanor. But at the end of the day, the things that we believe and say are a threat to, in this case, a state that insists that you fall in line and that you worship the emperor. First century Christians dealt with that. There were lines that they could not cross. And so when things are the worst, it's really the best time to show onlookers, you don't know who they are, how valuable Jesus is to you. And when you breach your integrity in the workplace or in this world in any way, and that's known by your neighbor, they just take note, Jesus isn't real after all. He was worth going to church for, but maybe there was just a lot of community and good songs, not a real Savior risen from the dead and at the Father's right hand that I heard of. The worst times are the best times to speak of Christ. They're also the best times to see your own faith and grow in your own assurance. The one who endures to the end will be saved. That's an encouragement from Jesus that as you persist in your faith, in believing and in faithfulness and in not straying, to that extent, your assurance that you're his grows. We'll all only be completely, totally sure when we see him face to face, But he means for us to have reasonable assurance and even growing assurance in this age. And this is one of those reminders. He wants you to take encouragement, not just in the end when you're saved, but along the way as you persist and as you endure, your assurance grows. This is meant to power your endurance. Well, there's worse to come. He said a bit ago that this is the only the beginning of the birth pains, and we thought, we thought that it was pretty bad already. And then he says, be on your guard, and he gives us this stuff. Well, it gets worse yet, but be encouraged. Verses 9 through 13, excuse me, verses 14 through 27, that Jesus prepares us for the worst to come, but also for what comes after that. But when you see the abomination of desolation standing where he ought not to be, Jesus tells us what we will apparently see, what these disciples will apparently see, to put ourselves back on the page. Some incredible act of evil, of audacious, proud, God-hating, sacrilege, blasphemy, you will see the abomination of desolation standing where he ought not to be. There will be somebody where they do not belong. There will be an event that takes place that is so gross and so evil and so grotesque that it draws on this abomination of desolation language from the book of Daniel that had been assigned to the pagan slaughter and sacrifice of a pig on the altar in the temple about 150 years before Christ came that the Jews knew well, no, something really, really evil is going to happen. And you're going to see it. And he tells them what to do when they see it. Let not the one who's, excuse me, half of verse 14, let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Flee to the mountains. Flee without delay. Flee without your things. Verse 15. Let the one who's on the housetop not go down or enter his house. Don't take anything out of it. Flee. Flee without even taking your cloak. Leave your cloak behind. Verse 16. Let the one who's in the field not turn back and take his cloak. And Pray. Pray that it might not happen in winter. Plead with God that he would time it just right. Embrace yourself for the worst. I have told you all these things beforehand. And if I hadn't cut the days short, no human being would survive. Something so grotesque and evil will come out of the human heart that if it were not stalled and stopped and halted, In some fashion, that it would swallow up the whole earth. You have to wonder what it is that will look like. And then he says, Look, verse 24, in those days after the tribulation, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. The stars will be falling from heaven, the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Cosmic Upheaval. And this language echoes the kind of language we hear in the Old Testament prophets that speak of that great day of judgment to come. Look, you won't see light, but look at what you will see then. And then, verse 26, they will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds with great power and glory. And that would be good news after a bad day turns worse turns to as bad as it can get if God doesn't stop it. Utter evil judged and turned over to utter power and glory in the appearing of the Son of Man. As bad as it ever will get for any of us at any time, at any place in this world, this promise remains. Flee without delay when you see the abomination of desolation. Without your things and without your cloak. And pray and brace yourself for the worst. And then look. You won't see light for a time. But then power and glory and brightness and light. And then, verse 27. He will send out the angels or his messengers. And gather his elect from the four winds. From the ends of the earth to the ends of the heaven. God will gather his people. God wins. The son is victorious in the end. All right, our fifth stop in this journey. So when will all this happen? Verses 28 through 37. Well, there are some things we can know, apparently. From the fig tree, Jesus says to those disciples on that mountain, "There are some things they can know. From the fig tree, learn its lesson, as soon as its branch becomes tender and puts out its leaves, you know that summer is near. So also, when you see these things taking place, this abomination of desolation, the sky going dark, you'll know that he is near. At the very gates, he's close. Truly, I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. You have to wonder what that must have felt like for them to hear on, on that mountain. And Jesus is, means to keep his promise. Heaven and earth won't pass away, will pass away. That'll be bad. But my words won't pass away. And there are some really great things that he has just said to them. There some things you can know. There are some things you can't know. But concerning the day or the hour, verse thirty-two, because you're going to want to know exactly when, and you're going to try to figure this out, and you're going to get out your little calculator. Concerning the day or the hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, only the Father knows. So here's my intent for you, Jesus says to you today. So be on guard and stay awake. Keep awake. You can't know the exact time. There is one thing you can know for sure and that my words will not pass away. Jesus says. So stay awake and be on guard. And there we are at that interesting worse, in that interesting puzzle. My words will not pass away. But then remember verse 30, truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. And so there's same things we can know, some things we can't. We're willing to accept that. It's one thing we can know for sure, But actually, even that thing has got us a bit bugged, if we're honest. If you try to account for every piece of this chapter under the rubric of a promise, they'll see it all. It gives us some trouble. One option, as we've surveyed, is that this all takes place at at 70 AD. Within the generation or the lifetime of many alive, when the temple is surrounded by armies and invaded and stones are thrown down. But what about this Jesus coming in great power and glory, the Son of Man in the clouds? Another view is that this all refers to his return, that as we begin through this passage, we're seeing the future unfolding, which climaxes at the glorious return of Christ. The problem with that is that that's not within the lifetime of those on the page. And then it's also a little weird, since we've been reading Mark for so long now, that Jesus would, at this moment in this gospel story, talk over their heads and past their experience to us. That he would say things to them with this kind of urgency and this kind of immediacy in this kind of a tense moment right before he's going to be arrested. And say these kinds of things to them that they won't see in their whole lifetime. They'll all die before Jesus comes back. One way to solve this is to say he's referring to both. And by noon on Monday, that's where I was. So prophetic preaching in the Old Testament, we'll know, uses what we might call telescoping. You're looking at the future in layers that are on top of each other. But if you pull it to the side... We see that it's stretched out and the prophets aren't always particular. And so we've got some things that happen here in the near term and some things that happen in the long term. And I actually think that's possible. Still, the problem is that some of these long-term things don't happen within the lifetime of the men sitting on the mountain. So is there another option? Hold on to that. I've said we should pay attention to what's happening on the page and what this meant for the disciples on the ground, on the mountain, with Jesus, looking at the temple, hearing all of this. So let's consider a few observations. Let's consider who Jesus is with. He is with these four disciples for for a private conversation that is apparently particularly relevant for his disciples. This was not given in a... A public situation at the highest point of tension in this book, as we've said. They follow Jesus into Jerusalem and they're getting into a tremendous amount of trouble with all the people you wouldn't want to mess with. Jesus is about to get arrested. He's about to be crucified and they will be without their Lord for a time. They're heading into one of the most terrifying moments they could imagine, anyone could imagine. So consider who Jesus is with. Listen to what Jesus says he will will do. The son of man, he's identified himself as the son of man, will come in the clouds with power and with glory. This imagery and this reference of the son of man coming would take us back to Daniel chapter 7, where there is a promise That after judgment, the Son of Man will come in power and will be given the kingdom by the Ancient of Days. The Messiah will come to judge and to receive a kingdom. He'll take his seat. In Daniel 7 has historically largely been understood as a reference to the ascension of the Messiah. When Jesus ascends to his Father's right hand, all power and authority is given to him, and he receives his kingdom, and his messengers go out to the end of the earth. It's interesting. That's what's be- before us in the Old Testament. What's before us in the book of Mark are multiple instances in which Jesus refers to himself as the Son of Man, and after which he speaks about his suffering. And his resurrection, his suffering and his resurrection in connection with his identity as the son of man. In this book, chapter 14, verses 62, he says to Pilate, are you the Christ, the son of the blessed? And Jesus said, I am, and you will see the son of man seated at the right hand of power and coming in the clouds of heaven. And that is naturally understood to be a reference to Jesus' resurrection. And no one really fights that. It's interesting that in the rest of the New Testament, the language of Son of Man is not used as a reference in connection with the return of Jesus. It's a name that's hardly used at all. It's used a lot in the Gospels before his death and resurrection. It's hardly used at all after his resurrection and not at all in connection with his return. I'm not preaching us out of a belief in the return of Jesus. <laughs> I'm trying to help us hear what might be happening on the page of this gospel according to what Mark is intending to do by the Holy Spirit. So if Jesus is actually referring to what's going to happen in the lifetime of these disciples to prepare them for what's going to happen next to them without giving away when it will happen, tomorrow, tomorrow, Are there any specific indicators in the text itself that this is the case? I've said to look at who Jesus is with. I've said to listen to what Jesus says he will do. Now watch the clock. We're in a third day as things have been slowing down to bring our attention to a climactic moment. But look here with me at verse 35. Stay awake, for you do not know when the master of the house will come in the Evening or at midnight or when the rooster crows or in the morning. Lest he comes suddenly and finds you asleep. Stay awake. In the coming weeks, I invite you to watch the hands on the clock in the day that follows. Watch. Watch for evening and for midnight and listen for a rooster to crow and consider what happens in the morning. And I would invite you to watch the action. Consider if anyone flees prematurely, not keeping Jesus' word. Consider if anyone leaves a cloak Consider who might fall asleep, not heeding these words Jesus has just said. Consider prayerlessness. Consider a profound act of evil in which someone is where they do not belong. The worst of all human evil ever to show its head. If God were not to stop it, it would swallow the whole earth alive. And no act of evil has happened that gruesome to that point. And no act of evil will ever happen from that point to that extent. Look out for an incredible act of blasphemy and sacrilege and a shaking the fist proudly in the face of God. And after that, look for the coming of the Son of Man in power and in glory And consider whether or not this is what Jesus was preparing these disciples for. For the first hearers, yes, I think he's preparing these readers for what he is not willing to say is coming in the next day, but for what is coming for them. The greatest tribulation, the greatest temptation, vulnerability to stray. And for the first readers of Mark's gospel, yes, for the persecution they would have coming and for the day when the temple was destroyed, oh, Jesus would put an end to the temple in his death. The priesthood is over. The temple, theologically, is good and done when the curtain is torn. It's over. But it would be invaded. And today, friends, you and me, yes, I think this passage is calling you and I not to go astray and to keep our guard up. Not to trust in buildings or human endeavors and achievements. Not to trust in answer men and spiritual gurus and people with new theories of how to achieve righteousness and be a good person. There's a huge market for that right now. Not to think, be on guard not to think that the worst is yet to come. The worst has come. The worst has come at the cross. And nothing ever worse will happen. Worse will come for you and us, you you and I, in this world before Jesus returns, putting other passages together, but not worse than the cross. Keep your guard up not to think that God is not in charge. This must take place. This must take place. My word will not pass away. And be on guard from distraction from the mission of Jesus. In the midst of all of this religious and international and national and natural upheaval. You and I might have the honor of bearing witness to Jesus. And laying hold of the promise that if we do endure to the end we'll be saved. With the knowledge that God will save all of his. For he has at Pentecost already set his Messengers out to the ends of the earth, has he not? And here we are, and the gospel's gotten here, and we're sending and being sent even today. Now, Jesus had a missile lock on his mission, and he doesn't want you and I to check out from the upheavals around us, but he doesn't write a paragraph about the particular upheavals around them. He puts them to the work. There will be wars and rumors of wars, and there are wars and rumors of wars about us today. But the great war is nothing less than the battle between our triune God and Satan for the souls of men and women. And Jesus will win in the end. There's your eschatology. So, friends, stay awake. Stay awake. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. and Be sober-minded and watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a luring lion, seeking someone to devour. But resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who calls you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever, no matter how it looks. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we pray to you, and we give you thanks for this word. We pray that you would, by your Holy Spirit, empower us, embolden us, to keep our guard up, not to fall asleep. Keep us awake. Wake us up every Lord's day with your word as we give ourselves to it. Help us to keep each other awake. Father, your word is powerful and your word is good. And sometimes we struggle to believe what you've written here. Sometimes we struggle to trust what you've written here. But I pray we would give ourselves to every word Jesus has said, believing that none of his words will pass away. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.